Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss the culture and art of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cianangeli. Andiamo avanti. Renaissance people, I hope we're all doing well and are excited for some more Renaissance history. Just a heads up, if my voice is a little underperforming, I suppose, today, I'm just recovering from a little bit of heavy metal last night, so excuse me while I try to power through this recording for you all. And I'm excited to shift gears here to take on something quite different from our usual subject matter and really start to round off the rough edges of Venetian Renaissance history as we have thus far been carving into it. We've talked at great length about painting and sculpture, and we've even looked at architecture in a more rudimentary way. We will not abandon visual art entirely in this episode. However, I am very pleased to present to you all among the most celebrated and prolific poets of the Italian Renaissance, and her name is Gaspara Stampa. This is not our first foray into the written world on this podcast, though I do want to review some important figures that helped shape the poetic culture in Italy at the time. These are names you have heard or should know in order to understand the basic elements of poetic development, which we talk about uh, in the very first few episodes of the show, as well as the introductory episode on Dante Alighieri. Always prominent is the celebrated Francesco Petrarca, or Petrarch, who wrote his Canzoniere in the mid-1300s, which is also known as the Rime Sparse, and that's how I'll refer to it going forward. Rime Sparse being scattered rhymes, which he wrote for his beloved Laura, who was maybe a real person, probably just a poetic device, who dies in the midst of his writing, either in real life or fictitiously. Importantly, he writes his rime sparse in volgare, the vernacular language, the language spoken by the people as opposed to the high literary classical Latin that he was likewise championing in his other writings. The rime sparse are indeed in the form of sonnets. We should recall that the creation of the sonnet is credited to the Sicilian poet Giacomo da Lentini of the 1200s from what is known as the Scuola Siciliana, the Sicilian school. So, by the 1500s, Gaspara Stampa is writing in what is a nearly codified and established tradition in Italy, one that continued well into her time, as she too is writing mostly in Petrarchan sonnets. The other important social context to understand is that poetry is nearly inseparable from music. Renaissance poetry walks the line between the written and the aural. It's to be read, yes, but performed as well, depending on the poetry type. For the three major centers of the Renaissance in the Cinquecento, Rome, Florence, and Venice, political turmoil in Rome and Florence allowed Venice to flourish as a new center of art, but particularly music production. Not that Venice didn't have its own problems. For Gaspara was in her time, known for her music talents before her poetry, although she was known to perform her own works in her Rime, which comes out later, the collection of poetry that wasn't published until after her death by her sister. Published by her sister. Written by Gaspara. 
And Gaspara did write a lot. So let's look over her general biography, and then we're going to dive into some of her actual poems, and we're going to tie her biography into her poetry and these sort of loose threads from the poetic tradition that we've been talking about. We are in the Cinquecento, the 1500s, the 16th century. Precisely 1523, Gaspara Stampa was born in Padua, under the dominion of the Republic of Venice. The Stampa family was of noble class, though she was born into what is called a cadet branch, a slightly removed from the main hereditary line. She's only eight years old when her father dies, and her mother, Cecilia, takes the family to the Venetian Lagoon, Venice proper, where they find some comfort in their status and cultural height that the uh, Venetian Republic is enjoying. To put the 1530s into context, Titian is the most prolific painter in Venice by this time, and often distant Rome, Michelangelo would soon begin a very close friendship with another extremely prolific poet by the name of Vittoria Colonna. This aligns with the adolescence of Gaspara Stampa, who would prove to be a popular singer and lute player along with her sister. She was also tutored in Latin and in grammar, receiving what would be considered a first-class education under the poet named Fortunio Spira. The Stampa home soon flourished as a cultural center for the Venetian elite, attracting certain people of prestige and power to her immediate social circle. Unfortunately, no amount of luxury can combat the somewhat turbulent and short life that Gaspara lived that gives so much power and emotion to her poetry. Her brother Baldassare's death in 1544 was particularly hard on her, almost resulting in her joining a convent and becoming a nun and abandoning her high Venetian society. Instead, she just temporarily removed herself and gave herself some time to grieve before getting back to it. By 1548, Gaspara encounters the man who would shape the entirety of her poetic production, and that is Count Colatino di Colato, uh, who she really falls madly in love with and enjoys about a year-long affair with him. Okay, guys, this is the Laura moment. The moment in which the poet finds love and muship only to see it stripped away. Colatino was both count and a military leader, and he soon leaves Venice by 1549. His coming and going brings little affection back to Gaspara, who now is living the centuries-old poetic trope that formed the bedrock of her own contemporary poetic tradition, the amore non corisposto, or unrequited love, just like Petrarch and Laura and Dante and Beatrice. It is for the vast range of emotion and despair around her affection for Colatino that Gaspara composes the vast majority of her poems because she was madly in love with him and he was not in love with her. And aside, Count Colatino and his family shared some renown in their own time. So Venetian painting in the Cinquecento was dominated by three major artists, two of which we've discussed in detail, Titian being the first, 
Tintoretto being the latter of uh, the latter of the three, the artist who painted those marvelous works around the myth of San Marco, such as the finding of the body of Saint Mark and Saint Mark's body brought to Venice. The third is a man by the name of Paolo Veronese, who takes after Titian in his magnificent use of color and painterly style. So, the big three of the 16th century, Titian, Veronese, and Tintoretto. In the collection of the Castel... Uh, Castel I'm not going to say this right. I'm going to try, though. In the collection of, of Castel... Okay, in the country of Czechia, or the former Czech Republic, uh, there's a portrait painting by Veronese that is said to be of Count Colatino. And I will post that portrait for you all to the Facebook and Instagram. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people. If you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. It is quite an expressional portrait, showing what looks like a quite relaxed man, maybe a little curious, maybe a little witty, and he's in this very decorative set of tournament armor, very much bearing the influence of Titian-esque portraits that we looked at in the previous episodes. In the much-loved armor collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, there is a set of highly ornate tournament armor that comes from the collection of the Colato family, and this is Count Colatino di Colato, right, um, that the Met curator says perhaps belonged to Colatino. So it, it's in the very uh, least an extremely similar armor set to the portrait by Veronese. Eerily similar even, though I'm sure that this is a matter of armor types that were popular in the period as opposed to the armor that this man is wearing in Veronese's portrait is the armor that the Met thinks belonged to Colatino, but there's probably an argument we made there, or one that has been that I haven't found. So, Colato Colatino is her first lover and muse, Count Colatino, and in the meantime of his comings and goings and heartbreakings, in 1550, Gaspara becomes a member of the Literary Academy that was founded in Venice in 1545, known as the Academia dei Dubiosi, and even published three works by 1553. In those years, she began her second prominent romantic relationship with a man named Bartolomeo Zen. And I want you guys to bookmark him because he's going to come back. Unfortunately, Gaspara dies very young in the year 1554, just one year later, after battling a long series of illnesses. At the age of 
only 31 she dies, guys, okay? And like I mentioned, her rime is collected and published by her sister Cassandra the same year. So she dies in April 1554. Cassandra has collected and compiled her, her poetry and has them published in 1554 in October. And Cassandra puts them in chronological order. And that gives us a diary-like experience to Gaspara's life and works, which is very exciting to experience. So let's jump into these works. I, of course, cannot cover all 311 poems that make up her volume, but some excerpts that interact with what we discussed about her life in context will help us understand how this is all coming together. I always believe that the first poem of a collection is an essential one, the first one you read, number one, setting the stage and the context for the work as a whole. And boy, is this opener telling. Traditionally, these poems are not titled, so they are referred to as as either their first line or the number that they appear in the published volume. So we're looking at number one of Gaspara Stampa's Rime, and it is called by its first line, Voi cascotate in queste meste rime. Okay, this, like so many others, is a roughly Petrarchan sonnet. Fourteen lines, varying meter and rhyme patterns though. Okay, but Gaspara is so in tune with Petrarch actually that she even echoes the very first line of his rime sparse in the first line of her rime, right? And I'm going to read these for you. First, in the original language, because I think that is important. And I will include translations when necessary for meaning. But I want you to hear, and I want you to feel, and I will always include everything that you need to know from it, okay? So let's start with Petrarch. And here it is, in original vulgare, vernacular Italian, um, the first four out of his 14 lines, which makes up a Petrarchan sonnet, of his very first sonnet in his canzoniere, or his rime sparse. He says, Voi cascoltate in rime sparse il suono di quei sospiri, ondio nudriva il core in sul mio primo giovenile errore, quando era in parte altruom da quel chi sono. Okay? Okay. Did you get that? <laughs> Did you pick up on that? Voi cascoltate in rime sparse il suono. That is the first line. Okay, voi, this voi, the first word, is you, right? So, you who are listening to these rime sparse, these scattered rhymes. He's calling to the reader. He's not writing poetry for him. He's telling you something, okay? And here is Gaspara. Remember, Petrarch, voi cascoltate in rime sparse il suono, okay? Gaspara, poem number one. Voi cascotate in queste meste rime. Ah, exactly right off of Petrarch, guys. Voi cascotate, but she changes it. We're not in these scattered rhymes. We're in queste meste rime, in these sad rhymes. And here's her whole first line, first four lines. Voi cascotate in queste meste rime, in questi mesti, in questi oscuri accenti, il suon degli amorosi miei lamenti e delle pene mie tra l'altre prime. 
Okay, Gaspara nearly copies his opening line, which will immediately tell anyone in the period, or people like you and me in the modern period, that this is after Petrarch, both in form, but also we are about to experience some pain. When you know it's the first line, or it's recalling the first line of Petrarch, you know this is a sad love story, okay? And there's going to be some heartbreak for our poet, because they are both addressing you, voi, directly, saying, come hear my pain. And what does Petrarch also say? In rime sparse il suono di quei sospiri, the sound of these sighs, sospiri. <sighs> these sighs of sadness. But what does she say? She takes that suono, but she puts it in her third line. In questi oscuri ascenti, il suono degli amorosi miei lamenti. The sound, not of my sighs, of my amorosi lamenti. My laments about love. My sad story, my sad love story. So she's taking these Petrarchan modes. So it's not just a matter of an existing bubble of, 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 of poetry, but it is being injected directly into the introduction of her rime so that we know where we are, what we're talking about, and in what tradition. Yeah, like I said, these works tend to be biographical. So yes, we're given a window into the, the poem of this unrequited love by Count Colatino. Yet, we see in her works a much looser version of what we expect to be permissible of women writers in a patriarchal society, only minorly less so in Venice, I might say, where she has no issue writing about being romantically inclined, not just towards Count Colatino, but in other poems in her, in her rime, towards multiple men. I'm now turning to rime number 206. So, Later in her short life, since we are so far along chronologically, from number 1 to 206 out of 311, uh, a more famous piece of hers that seems to remark on a particular event that we discussed. It is called Amor ma fatto tal che io vivo in fuoco. Right? Love has done so much to me that I, I'm living in, in flames. I am going to be giving you both the Italian, just like I, I just did, but with the English translation, and I'm going to alternate them because I'm going to do the whole poem for this one. And the translation comes from uh, a website called poetryandtranslation.com, though I will ad-lib some of my own translations for clarity and a dash of commentary in between the verses, right? So um, if we're looking at the translation, so I, I want to be clear that a translation is not the original work. It's someone's interpretation of the original work because words don't always map one for one across languages. And when you're translating something like a sonnet, something like a Petrarchan sonnet that has very specific syllable meter, right? Usually they're called endecasyllables. They have 11 syllables per line and then two quatrains and two tercets for 14 lines total that have a codified rhyme scheme, the translator into English has to make some decisions because A, things rhyme easier in Italian because more words end in similar endings right off the bat. So you have to decide, am I going to maintain the meter? Am I going to maintain the meaning? Or am I going to maintain the rhyme scheme? Or meter and rhyme scheme? Or meter and meaning? Or rhyme scheme and meaning? And it ends up, what you end up with is not a word-for-word -word translation and not even a sense-for-sense -sense translation. And this translation seems very interested in 
maintaining the rhyme scheme. So there might be some weird overlap. Okay? Okay. Here we go. Amor m'ha fatto tal che io vivo in foco, qual nova salamandra al mondo e quale l'altro di lei non men strano animale che vive e spira nel modesmo loco. It's first four lines. Love has made me like one who lives in flame. To the world I'm some new salamander, nor less strange than that eternal creature that lives and dies its nest and pyre the same. She's referencing a salamander which is known to be able to survive being in fire. That is that is the whole concept of the salamander. So love has made me like one who lives in flame. Tal que io vivo in foco, foco, fire, right? So she is alive, but she's in on fire. Okay. Le mie delizie son tutte il mio gioco vivere ardendo e non sentire il male e non curar che che m'induce a tale abbia di me pietà molto ne poco. This is all my joy and all my delight to live while burning and ne'er feel the pain and to him who did this ne'er complain nor seek his slightest pity day or night. So she's talking about Colatino. To him who did this, I'm not going to complain and I'm not going to seek his pity. I am going to live in the flame. Appena era anche estinto il primo ardore che accese l'altro amore a quel che io sento fin qui per prova più vivo e maggiore. Scarcely was that first ardor spent in me when love lit another that doth so thrive. For I'll ne'er repent of loving ardently. I will not repent for how much love I felt for Colatino no matter what type of abandonment he's done. Okay? She's not remorseful for loving. But what is this? L'altro amore, when love lit another that doth so thrive. She's talking about Bartolomeo Zen. Okay? She's writing about living in the flame of the heartbreak of Colatino, but love has shown me another. Right? But I still will not repent for loving Colatino so much. So even in this one poem, she mentions elusively both Colatino and Bartolomeo. Ed io darder amando non mi pento, por che chi ma di novo toto il cuore resti dell'arder mio pago e contento. Tis like to prove more fruitful, more alive. The love, right? The love of Bartolomeo is like to prove more fruitful, more alive, if he who's newly seized my heart will be content, nor yet to damp my ardor strive. So, okay, so this will be much better if he who seized my heart will also enjoy loving me, unlike Colatino, okay? These poems give us some insight into what is happening in the social climate of Venice at the time, but also how she sort of stands out from it, okay? It is not uncommon for women to write and publish poetry in the period, and it is also not uncommon for them to follow Petrarch or to even eroticize some um, heroic male in their life. It is it, it, it makes sexual innu- innuendo. Um, this is happening during the Renaissance from female writers. So what this is giving us a glimpse into is how a high 
cultured, somewhat court woman is navigating multiple love interests, okay? Um, and also how that becomes permissible by publishing these. Um, and there, she does all sorts of other things like directly addresses women and makes sonnets written specifically to the women of her period, which are also likewise extremely interesting to read. And that really was the breadth of our sojourn into her sonnets, and I think it covered enough to present to you all the essence of her life, her work, and her importance. We saw how she's recalling an older tradition and integrating it with her own life circumstances, which is really interesting. And she didn't only write sonnets. She also wrote something called a madrigal, or madrigals, which is a, a, a more lengthy, complex composition designed for multiple singers and an instrumental accompaniment. And uh, they usually treat secular themes, just like her sonnets are in this case. And there are plenty of examples of Renaissance madrigals that you can listen to on YouTube. I tried to look at mu find music versions of hers, and I didn't successfully do that. Not of her madrigals. I found music versions of her sonnets. But um, I think it's far better to listen to a madrigal than to read it, because that was their intended purpose to begin with. Due to the nature of her known work, all sorts of conspiracy theories have sprung up. Did she die of a broken heart? Or did she take her own life when the Count rejected her love? Was her illness brought on by her intense emotional state? No, no, I would not say so, even if I do enjoy an occasional outlandish interpretation myself. Uh, though she did grieve quite a bit in her life, and we know from her brother dying, her father too, early in her life, and being someone who was talented and adored, but she did not quite fit into her own society at times. It was even being proposed that she was one of the famous Venetian courtesans, that being the upper class group of uh, female sex workers who became so well known in Venice that people would go to Venice for them, but they were in Rome and other places too. But um, that doesn't have enough evidence that she was a courtesan. Actually, I think it's reductive to say that she was a courtesan just because she dared to write about more than one man. You follow me? It's like we're sort of projecting this prejudice into the past that doesn't quite map onto reality. In all likelihood, she was a hopeless romantic with a very good education who wrote alarmingly powerful poetry and unfortunately died way too young of a fever from any number of common diseases in Renaissance Italy. To be clear, in the time of her progressing illness, she went to Florence to try to get you know, better air quality, to, to try to heal herself. But she still took a turn for the worse in, when she returned to Venice and, and she died, which is Hardly the thing someone would do um, if they were wasting away about to die from an ugly breakup with a handsome count. With that, I conclude what I hope was a compelling look into the life and work of a very prolific Venetian poet, Gaspara Stampa, who died way too soon, surely, but left us a very important record into her life and into the... Uh, in between the lines of Venetian high society for women. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at Italian underscore, <laughs> at Italian underscore Renaissance underscore podcast and also on Facebook and now TikTok, which is an interesting adventure for me, I think. So um, all of that will be linked in the show notes. 
I will be posting all related images and additional information on those social media platforms. Even though we didn't cover too much art, we did cover some, um, and I would like to share that with you all. So thank you again for listening. Feel free to send me messages. I love talking to you guys and emails. Be in contact. Interact with some of the social media stuff I put up because that helps me curate this show towards your interest. Until next time, my dear, dear listeners, arrivederci.